Hello everybody. Good evening. This is our annual Sheva Bimshir on Halachas of Nida. Um, every year, it's a question what to focus on. There's a limit how much Halachas uh, Nida you can cover in about an hour. So this year, I think I'm going to work on a little basics and then we'll work on Vestas. Halachas of Vestas, calculating and how they apply in different situations. I want to talk through um, pregnancy and childbirth, uh, particular, you know, when it comes to Shabbos and other things. And I also want to see, hopefully we'll have time, I want to get to Halachas of Tznius, which are in Simon Reish Mem in Shulchan Aruch Archaim, which are the Halachas that apply in the bedroom. So let's see what we can uh, get to in this time. And after after I'm after we're done, you can ask. I mean, you can ask questions in the middle with the chat, but you can mainly ask questions afterwards. And uh, you can ask questions on things I didn't cover as well. So we can try to we can try to cover that. So some of the basics, uh, of course, is that when a woman um, becomes anida. So the first thing you have to do is wait till it stops. But what's been complicated over the past couple of years with the advent of different forms of medication, of, of birth control and different, different applications, is that very often they affect a woman's period and it becomes very hard to know precisely when she's getting her period because it becomes very un, um, irregular and it doesn't, the, the bleeding isn't normal, it's very light or it's just a, a lot and, and for a very small amount of time and then very little afterwards. So it becomes very different than what a typical cycle used to be. And as a result, it's become difficult for people to know whether they are getting their period or whether they're not or whether they should consider themselves us or not. And there is uh, unfortunately no simple answer to this question, but here's the rule of thumb, how a woman becomes an Ida, and oftentimes you might have to speak with a Rav. Uh, each time, if it's, if, it's, if it's confusing, and that's just the nature of the situation these days. So... The the rule of thumb is that what makes a woman of Anida is obviously, you know, the things that it says in Shulchan Aruch, which is a Kesem, or a Hargasha. So if a, a woman sees Dam and she actually has a Hargasha, which is kind of rare, because the Hargasha, the way Chazal describes it, the way Alokha describes it, is not very, very atypical. Or if a woman has a Kesem, which means she sees Dam the size of a, of a, a penny on something white, so then she'll become a nida. But typically that doesn't happen because when a woman is bizman heter, when a woman is mutter, she's not wearing white. And what happens is she starts spotting. So at what point do we say, well, it's spotting and it's on colored underwear, so it's a kesem. And then at what point does it transfer into becoming a flow? And a flow is, makes her into a nida even though there's no hargasha because we assume there was a hargasha or because a flow by definition makes her into a nida. So when is that transference point? When does that change over? So... There's, again, it's not an exact science, but the concept is, typically, the way it would work is, is if a woman um, sees enough that she feels compelled to wear a pad or to wear some kind of protection, so generally that indicates that enough is coming out to be considered a flow. Another indicator of a flow is if it's 
if it's regular, in other words, it's happening throughout the day, even if very little is coming, but it's, it's happening on regular intervals throughout the day, not just like once or twice, but it's going throughout the day, that also is indicative of a flow. Um, uh, or if, let's say, she was wearing a, a pad or a liner and a significant amount of it got filled up, right? So that's also a significant amount. I mean, like, you know, like half of it got filled up. So that's also an indicator of, of, of a flow. So all those things are indications of a flow. And that's actually, if that happens, it's kind of straightforward. Where it gets complicated is that sometimes the color might be very light or it might be very diluted. So it's hard to know. Is this red? How much red is there? And that's when it gets complex. And that's when you uh, will have to speak to a rub to, to, to ascertain was this a flow or was this not a flow? Does this render you a nida? Does this not render you a nida? But it's good to keep those things in mind. A, you know, do you feel compelled to wear protection? B, is it coming regularly throughout the day? And B, has it accumulated a large, uh, C, I'm sorry, has it accumulated a large amount? Any one of those three will be enough to render a person a nida. And then if it's, the color is a question, then obviously you would have to speak with a rub. Also, if it is happening with a regularity, which means it's on the 30th day, you know, a day that you're kind of expecting it, to come, that also will definitely weigh as part of the decision whether this is uh, the flow and, and making a person into an idah. That's how a person becomes an idah. And like I said, that has been, I've been asked a lot about that recently because of the way birth control works these days. It has changed a lot. Another thing I, I've noticed that there's a little confusion about is that what we all know is that once nida begins, you need to wait a minimum of five days before you can start doing shivanakim. So you wait five days from the onset of the bleeding or from when you became usher. And the first day, day number one of that five days can be two minutes, right? As long as she started bleeding before shkia. So then you count that as day number one. Doesn't that, there's no length to whatever day number one is. As long as it's, it's before shkia, you count that as day number one. So day number one, is that, and then you count another four days. The misconception I find is that people think that that's a rule, that anytime you're bleeding you have to count five days, and that's not true. The concept of five days is to put a space in between the last time you were mutter to when you start Shavanakim. That's the purpose of the five days. The purpose of the five days has nothing to do with the bleeding. It actually has to do with being mutter. That's what it has. That's what five days is coming to avoid. It's coming to avoid issues with, with Sheikh uh, Wazara being mechapa and damnida, you know, whatever, or or peleta Sheikh Wazara, etc. It's a whole different issue. It has to do with being mutter, and that's what creates confusion because I've I've heard more than once from people that they they think like after um, a childbirth, uh, it could be months since they were last mutter. And then it stopped bleeding and started again, and they think they have to wait another five days before they can start the shivanikim, and that's incorrect because you're you haven't been mutter for a month and a half already. There's no need to wait five days. As soon as you can make a half sick tire, you start your shivanikim. Uh, if a woman has uh, was doing her shivanikim and then the flow started again, sometimes that happens. You don't have to wait five days. It's already been five days since you've been mutter to your husband. So as long as there's more than five days from when you have been mutter last, then there is no need to count five days anymore, and you start your Shiva Nikim as soon as you can. So that's also a, a basic Nakuda that I just wanted to make sure we all remember. Um, and then another point which is confusing, which is interesting now, being the way Mikvahs are operating during COVID is kind of interesting, 
But uh, when to do the Khafifa, when it's when your Leil Tvila is on Matzah Shabbos? Should you be doing your Khafifa Arab Shabbos or should you be doing your Khafifa Matzah Shabbos? When should you take your bath? When should you do your preparation? Uh, so in Shulchan Aruch it's, it says you should do it Arab Shabbos and uh, do a little bit on Matzah Shabbos. But what I've heard from Paiskim, again, what my Maseri is, is that nowadays it's suggested to rather just do it Matzah Shabbos in, you know, in prep, right before you're about to go to the mikvah. Again, obviously you could do it the way it says in Shulchan Aruch, that's fine if you want to do it Arab Shabbos, but oftentimes doing it Arab Shabbos is actually quite stressful. Um, and likelihood is you'll act, probably not do such a good job, and it's easier and better to do it on Matzah Shabbos, so in deference to the to to the situation today, uh, it, it's suggested to do it Matzah Shabbos, and of course if it's a two-day yantiv or a three-day yantiv, like we're coming up, and you have a Matzah Yantiv tefillah, certainly uh, it's better to do it on right before the tefillah on, on Matzah Yantiv, or, or, or you know, Matzah Shabbos and Yantiv. So that's just some basics. Now let's go to, to Vestas. I want to discuss Vestas. Vestas, I find uh, there tends to be a mental block with Vestas because people think it involves math and it involves calculations, where in truth it doesn't. Um, basically, if you can count to 10, you can do Vestas. You do have to be able to use a calendar, you know, look at the numbers on the calendar. So it's not, it's not an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. It's just you have to remember the rules, but it's not, it doesn't involve any math. Uh, it, it's also important to know that it's the equal responsibility of the husband and the wife, and it's, imp- it's important that they both should participate. Um, you shouldn't leave it to one or to the other. You should look them over time to time. You know, one person can do it, but it's good to, to both of you to be involved because more often than not, Sometimes a mistake is made and, you know, the two eyes are better than one. One important thing I've learned over experience is to, if, even if you don't calculate the Vestas immediately after you get your period, write down when you got your period immediately after you got your period because inevitably you will forget. Uh, you think you won't forget, but you will. It'll happen, you know, it'll be a month later and you say, one second, was it a Monday? And you start trying to make correlations. Was it Sukkot? Was it Arab Sukkot? Were we in the middle of baking something? You know, try to figure all the ways that when was it that you got your period? So uh, we've, we've learned the hard way that the best way to figure this out is to do this is to write, at least write that much down right away when the period happened, uh, when it started, and when, when you got the, what, whether it was night or day. Um, <clears throat> the day to one interesting thing about calculating when the day of the vest is, is that it doesn't necessarily work with when you started to be noyheg iser. Meaning to say, sometimes a woman spots, uh, like she starts seeing a little, little bit of blood, and as soon as she starts seeing a little bit of blood, so you're pirate, which is what you should do. You separate uh, with the, because you don't want to know Shalom to 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 be. And neither you don't want to be over the iser of, of Nida. But she hasn't really halachically begun her period yet. Her period only begins when there's a flow. And Vestas are determined by that. So if, let's say, she started spatting on Sunday and she didn't actually develop into what we would consider a flow until Sunday night, so then the vest is calculated from Sunday night. Not from Sunday afternoon, where she had started spatting, and you realize, okay, the need is starting, but it hasn't actually started until there's a flow. So the point when there's a flow, which we defined earlier, which would be, you know, when you feel necessary to put on a, a pad, it's coming with regularity, etc., a large amount, any of those things, it's at what that point, 
that the vest is determined. So if that happens at night, then it's at night. If it only happens the next day, then it's the next day. Whereas, as far as the five days are concerned, you can actually start counting the five days from when you were Pirish as a result of Nida. So as long as you were Pirish and you considered it, you know, we have to start separating because of Nida, so you can count it towards the five days, because like we explained, the five days are just a question of separation. As long as you were, there was an Isser here or something causing you to think that it's Usser, uh, which separated you from your wife, you can start counting that for the five days. But Vestas actually is dependent on when the flow began because that's what's going to determine when it'll happen next time. So when the, the, whenever the flow is, that's how you determine the Vest. Okay, so that's how Vestas start. That's how we figure out Vestas. Now, what are the Vestas? So we know there are three Vestas, three main ones, al Kalpanim, which are Aina Bainanis, and Ainabaninus is day number 30. Um, there is Yom HaChaydesh, which is the, the Jewish date. And then there's the Haflaga, which is the equal time span between the last two periods toward the next period, right? Those are the three. Ainabaninus, Yom HaChaydesh, Haflaga. So yeah, again, Ainabaninus, the Ikra Din is day 30. There is a Chumrah to keep day 31. I'm not going to discuss that. Every person will do as their minig is. But... The main thing is day 30, and Yom is day of the month, and Aflaga is the time span in between periods. Now, the rule always for calculating any vest is you start counting from the day that the vest began, and that's day number one, okay? So if, day, uh, if the vest began on Sunday day, so then day number one is Sunday day. And then you count 30 days, uh, you know, and you start from that Sunday day on let's say if it's day, uh, the first day of the secular month, January 1st, and you count until January 30th, and January 30th is going to be your Ayinabaninus. That's day 30. Now, Ayinabaninus will always be whatever your last vest was. So if your last vest was a day vest, so the Ayinabaninus is going to be a day vest, and if the last the last, if the previous period was at night, then the Ayinabaninus is going to be at night. And it'll just, it's one or the other, it's not both. So it's either the, the night or the day, depending on what it was. During the time of the Aina, during the time of when the actual Aina is, in other words, if you had your, your period by day, so then day 30, the 30 days later, Aina Benin is, by day, you're required to make one Bidika. Shulchan Aruch only says you have to make one Bidika. There is a minig to make two Bidikas, if that's the way you've been naig, you can continue doing that way, but it's important to understand. The main halacha, the ikra halacha, is to do one Bidika, one Bidika only, but that's required. And this vest, Aina Beninis, is the only one of the vestus that if you don't make a Bidika, you're not permitted to be together with your wife until you make a Bidika. So if you forget to make a Bidika on Aina Beninis, and you remember that night, or the next day, or whenever it is, you have to make a bedika before you can meet together. But as soon as you remember, you can make the bedika at any point. It doesn't make a difference. As long as you, as long as that you make that bedika, as soon as you make that bedika, you're mutter. But this is the only one of the vestas that the bedika is ma'akev in order to be mutter. Now, Ayin is also is unique that it's the one it's the one vest that can be sometime skipped. And wh- when is that? When, let's say, for example, a woman is pregnant and then she's nursing, right? And being that she's nursing, so she hasn't had a regular period for a long time. So at 10, min- 10 months into nursing, she suddenly starts to develop some form of a period. But it's very, very er- erratic, right? She gets it once, 
and then she doesn't get another one until two and a half months later. So again, the Messiah I have, I have is that you don't start keeping Ainabeninus until you've established a pattern, which means until you've established a cycle. Once the cycle comes back, so it might take two or three times, but once you see that the cycle has come back, then you start keeping Ainabeninus. This is in contrast to the other two um, Ainus of Yamechaydesh or Aflaga, those you always have to keep no matter what. So that has to be kept no matter what. By Ainabeninus, that you have to have a regularity, and if there's no regularity, then uh, until, you, until you establish that, you don't keep it. Now, I wonder, this I don't have a Messiah on, so I'm not comfortable to say that it's okay, but again, with certain forms of birth control, particularly with the IUD, it can make your period go awry so that there is no regularity and you get it once and then you get it three months later and then a month and a half and it's all, it's all mixed up. That I haven't gotten any kind of sack that the Einabeninus can be skipped, so it shouldn't be. Then you should keep the Einabeninus. Um... <clears throat> Fine, so that's, that's Aina Beninus. Yom HaChadish, as we said, is the, the, the day of the Jewish month. That's the easiest one to calculate. So if it's Daladir, it's Daladir. If it's Daladir by day or Daladir by night. Night, of course, being the night previous to Daladir. And then it's going to be the following, the following month, Dalad Sivan, and so on and so forth. So that's the easiest one to calculate, and that's the way, that's the way it's done. And that you always have to do, as I said, anytime you get a period, you have to calculate a... Yom HaChadosh, and that's even if for some reason, Chas a woman got usher significantly usher during pregnancy, which can happen sometimes, um, that uh, she has for some reason significant bleeding during pregnancy, with which Amir Tashem won't ruin the pregnancy, so pregnancy continued, but they could make her into a need. That has happened, and has happened to many people. Uh, that would require a, um, a Yom ha, it would require a, a, a Yom HaChadosh as well. Um, here also, the only one bedika is required. Mekaradin uh, again, you might have a minute to do two, but only one bedika is required. Mekaradin. However, if you forget to do the bedika on the Yamechaydesh, then after the day passes or the night passes, whichever one it is, there is no requirement anymore to do that bedika. So the bedika of Yamechaydesh is only for the time itself. If you haven't done it, then you missed it. The haflaga is the one that you is make, actually takes counting. You have to count on the calendar to know exactly when it is. Like I said, there's no math required. It's just a question of counting to 10. Uh, the way you count the haflaga, uh, the way it's been accepted to count it, that doesn't, it's really kind of arbitrary. You can count it any way you like, but this is the way everybody counts it, so we try to keep it uniform. And that is, the way you do it is that you count the day that you had the period as day one, and then you count the day that you had the second period as day two, right? So if the so day as the I'm sorry, as those are part of the number. Meaning to say, uh, you got a period on on um, Dalid ER. So Dalid ER is day one of your haflaga counting, and you count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, whatever it is. And then whenever it is that was the you got the next period. Let's say it was on day uh, thirty-two. You got the next period, so that's also count, counted in your number. So you count both Re'iyas as part of your number. The, the, the period that started it and the second period that completes it 
both are included in the number. So it's 32 is day, the first day of 32 is the day you got your first period, and day number 32 is the day you got your second period, and that's your number. And then 32, you start counting again from day number one is the day that you got that second period. So you end up counting that day twice, so to speak. You count it as the last day, so to make your number of 32, and then you count it again to start off your 32 to figure out when your next vest will be. That's how you calculate that flago. And um, haflaga also is one of those vests that always apply. Whenever you get a period, you have to keep the haflaga together with the uh, Yemachayish, again, provided that you've had two um, consecutive periods. So here also I get asked that sometimes the last period was like a long, long time ago. So if it's more than three months, then you certainly don't have to count it. If it's within three months um, and thereby could create some kind of haflaga, uh, it would kind of depend. So you should ask a rub in that situation. It would depend on the nature of, of how you're getting your periods. Sometimes the irregularity might form your new reality. So that should be discussed with a rub if it's, if it's really very random and it doesn't seem like it's any kind of pattern. <clears throat> uh, here too, on Aflaga, if you forgot to do the Badika, only one Badika is required, Mekadin, if you forgot to do the Badika then uh, it's not makiv. Afterwards, you can be together, and it's not, you're not required to make that, uh, that badika. Once all three vests is passed, it's not Ayin Abenidus anymore, it's not Haflaga, it's not Yemachaydesh, you are mutter. And and if you have no reason to believe that your period is coming, there is no spatting, you are 100% mutter to be together, there's no requirement for any more badikas. There is what we call the Vest Arzarua. The Vest Arzarua is a Chumrah, a Chumrah that was imposed by the Shach, but a Chumrah nonetheless. And the Chumrah of the Arzarua is to add on a period of Isser. In other words, this is not... Till now we've been discussing the requirement to make a Bedikah. And now the Arzarua just adds on another period of time that you should separate from your wife. So besides separating from your wife during the time of the vest itself, so it means if you got your period on a day, let's say you had Mechaydish, right? You got it on Dalat Ir, daytime. So then Dalat Sivan, daytime, is the main vest, and that's when you have to separate from your wife. Arzarua would give you an extra period of time the previous night, Whatever is previous, whatever is the, the, the time, the day-night period prior to the time of the vest is also Asr. So if it was Dalat Sivan daytime, then the night of Dalat Sivan, which is previous, will be Asr. Again, no Badika required at night, but it'll be Asr. Relations will be Asr. If it was nighttime, then the previous day will be what's Asr to have relations. So Arzurua adds on the Isr of having relations in the previous uh, time period. Now, what exactly is prohibited during a, uh, during a vest, during an aina? So it's obviously the relations, marital relations are prohibited. Hugging and kissing are to be avoided. It's not usr, it's not strictly usr, but it's to be avoided. And likewise, sleeping in the same bed is the same thing as hugging and kissing. So those two things are what need to be avoided. The ikr isr is, is uh, actual relations. But uh, like I said, hugging and kissing and sleeping in one bed should be avoided. One interesting, um, one interesting complication with uh, Vestas is when a person is on birth control. What happens is, is that during your cycle of birth control, you know that you're not going to get your you're not going to get your period. 
until you finish your uh, three week, whatever it is, the pill is, is, right? So if you're on the pill and you know that you only get your, you can only get your period once you stop the pill or you start taking the placebo, whatever it is, and you're within that time and somehow a vest came out because maybe you messed up with your pills or because you took them in, you know, different quantities, different amounts. So it turns out that you have a vest that falls out during a time when you know you can't get your period because you're on the pill, you actually don't have to keep that vest, okay? So if you know with a certainty that you're not going to get your period because you're still in the middle of your cycle of your birth control pills, you actually don't have to keep uh, that, that vest. The other way around, let's say the pills are what, co- is what are what causing you to get, let's say, a regularity. Let's say because you took the pill, now you got three times in the row in a row, dalad l'chaydesh, or you establish some kind of veskavua as a result of the pills. That actually does have the status of a veskavua and needs to be treated that. And should it happen, you should speak with a rav just to understand exactly how a veskavua works. And uh, with a pill, it's a little interesting. It's not exactly. The typical way of Eskavua works, it's called Aide Samim. So in any case, um, that should be discussed with a rub. But that's important to realize. Actually, uh, if you see yourself developing, you should keep this in mind, and if you see by taking the pill you're developing a Kriyas, it's actually worthwhile to see to it that you don't. Uh, because having a veskavua is a headache, halachically. So it's better not to have one. So uh, skip a pill or take extra or do something uh, artificial to make sure that you don't de- de- develop a veskavua if, if you see that that's happening. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about vessels. Let me just take a look at the questions. i got a few questions here. Um, one question. Skipping Ayn for two years after giving birth. Right, so this is not so much, this Shulchan Aruch seems to say this, but it's not really in practice anymore. Moshe said that the mitzvah has changed, and we don't have in, in the days of uh, Chazal, women would not get their period for two years after birth, even if they weren't nursing. They would be mislek as dumb. They wouldn't get. They wouldn't bleed at all. Nowadays, that's not the mitzvah anymore. That's clearly not the mitzvah. Even with nursing, it doesn't. Not so foolproof. Certainly not. Twenty-four months to go without a period because of nursing is unusual. So uh, Rav Moshe says that that's that itself, within itself, is not enough of a reason not to keep the inabeninus. Next question is um, by Haflaga calculating whether the aina is a day or night based on last verse, not kind of aina. That's correct. In other words, when you calculate your Haflaga, so it's uh, again here too. The next vest is going to that vest of is going to be whatever your last vest was. So if your last vest was a day vest, then it's going to be a day vest. If your last one is a night vest, it's going to be a night vest. And you don't just calculate the amount of time periods or half time periods that it adds up to be. So that's the rule. Whenever whatever the last one is is going to be uh, in in the in, in in the coming vest as well. One last question here is what is Usr in Arzurua? In Arzurua again the way I learned is that the only thing you have to be makbid on during Arzurua is actual relations. During Arzurua, the Khumra of Arzurua, you don't have to add the additional Khumra of not hugging and kissing. So it is permitted to do hugging and kissing uh, during the vest of Arzurua, but you know it's good to have Seichel also and know that you know it's not always just keep it under control, but otherwise, essentially, it's mutter, right? So that you could do. Okay, I want to talk about, um, let's move on to pregnancy and, and childbirth. Uh, so, as I mentioned earlier, I just want to clarify again that during pregnancy, vestas need to be kept, but that's only during the first three months of pregnancy. So, uh, usually the most relevant is like this. You had a period and then you became pregnant. 
uh, you know you became pregnant through a pregnancy test, and now you happen to have a vest, right? So you've, on day number 30, you took a pregnancy test, and you see that you're pregnant, and then on day, happens to be your vest is day number 33. You have a flog at day number 33. You know you're pregnant. That doesn't make a difference. Within the first three months of pregnancy, you still have to keep vestus. After that, you don't. But within the first three months of vestus, you do need to keep, uh, a pregnancy, you need to keep vestus. Um, now, during... Uh, pregnancy, like I mentioned before, you could become Anita, and if there is bleeding, obviously you immediately call a doctor and you just make sure everything's okay. But n- bleeding during pregnancy could make you into Anita, even though the doctor will say it's from this and it's from that. Uh, it doesn't make a difference. We, we, we treat all them the same in that way. So if it bleeds, there is bleeding during pregnancy, it will make you into Anita. And once you become a needy, you have to keep regular halachas. So you have to do bedikas and, and the five days and the seven days, etc. And go to the mikvah. And don't worry that they'll look at you funny going into the mikvah when you're pregnant. You're not the first one. They've seen it many times before. It happens. It's something that unfortunately happens. And it's not, not an unusual thing. Last thing is that pregnant women um, do not fast. Except for Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av. And uh, this year Tisha B'Av is a nidcha, I believe. So... You won't fast on Tisha B'Av either, but uh, you're supposed to try a little bit on Tisha B'Av. But otherwise, uh, you don't, you, you, you don't, pregnant women should not fast. And that's actually from when you know you're pregnant. So even, even like, you know, as soon as you t- get a pregnancy test and you know you're pregnant, you do not have to fast on a fast. I will say that this is the halacha, but there are people who are noyik to fast, even when they're pregnant. And if that's, you know, the rest of what your minig is, you can do that. But you don't have to feel that you're obligated to do that. <clears throat> I uh, always like to point out that when you know when a, when a woman is pregnant and it comes to uh, having relations and being intimate with your wife, uh, is one of those times that communication is key. Um, if you any time, any time in a person's life that you have to make sure you work on your communication, is certainly during pregnancy. And the more communication there is, the happier everybody will be. And uh, you know, if, if as long as there's open communication, then then you'll you'll be able to avoid um, resentment, frustration, uh, each person thinking, you know, that they're not addressing the other person's needs, communicate, and everything will be much better. It takes a little effort, it takes a little bit of pushing oneself to get past the uncomfortableness, or perhaps the thought in in our own heads that it's like this or it's like that, but it has tremendous payoff. And like I said, during pregnancy, more than any other time, it's extraordinarily important to make sure you communicate well. Um, nursing women also do not have to fast, right? Throughout the nursing period, um, people beca- start to wonder, like once they are towards the end of nursing, they're only nursing once a day or, or uh, by day or by night. Uh, that At that point, um, you should ask your child. It, it, it depends. Uh, just... Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, childbirth. First, let's discuss at what point does a woman become Anida by childbirth? So, um, breaking water does not make a woman Anida. Just breaking water itself does not make a woman Anida. But if there is blood, then uh, obviously you do become Anida. So, so, just for the fact that you broke your water, that doesn't make you into Anida. One of the things that doctors do as a form of inducement 
uh, induction, I should say, is stripping, right? So they strip the membrane. I don't know exactly what it means, but whatever it is they do, that actually does make a woman anida. Uh, there is bleeding involved. So that, that does make a woman anida. Uh, as far as inducing is concerned, um, that's always you know a question that needs to be asked to a rub. It's an interesting thing, the question of whether you're allowed to induce or not. What the, the, the rationale behind it, Rav Moshe explains, is that we don't induce because we don't want to put ourselves into a matzav of sakana, which he holds is both, he holds is a halachic concern, um, and there's also, a, he says, a hashkafic issue with uh, bringing on a baby before it's meant to come. So there's both a hashkafic and a halachic issue, and he says, once it happens naturally, it happens naturally. But the general approach of all Rabbanim is that when there's any medical reason to induce, then obviously you listen to your doctor and you induce. So whenever a doctor suggests inducing, you have to ask them, why do you want to induce? Sometimes it's because, you know, they say, well, the hospital will be busy on this day, I prefer it to be on that day, you're in your week number 40 anyway, all these kinds of other reasons, and then you say, you know what, that's not preferable for us, uh, you know, uh, religiously we want to wait until we absolutely have to before we induce. Other times they'll say they'll tell you the water is low. Is low uh, our policy, we we don't hold it safe to wait beyond these weeks. All those situations, then you induce. People ask me, should we induce on a Friday? Should we wait till Monday? And the answer is always the same. The answer is, if the doctor thinks you have to induce today, then induce today. If he thinks you can wait till Monday, then wait till Monday. <laughs> Nothing, Friday is not, there's no reason not to do it on a Friday. If you have to do it on a Friday, then do it on a Friday. And if you don't, then you shouldn't be doing it on a Friday at all. Right? So that's the, if there is a medical reason to induce, you should. There are other considerations which inducing would be allowed, so you can obviously discuss it in, with a rub, you know, if there are other considerations, there are other situations which would allow for inducing to, uh, to be done. <clears throat> so, now all these things, though, what's interesting is that it's only uh, if labor hasn't begun at all. But once labor has begun, you're in active labor already, and now they just want to speed things up. That's okay. That's fine, that you could do. Because once labor has begun, then none of those considerations are a consideration anymore. Um, and they want to you know, just make things go faster. Go, it's actually better for your health for it to, to move quicker. So what, if he wants to do whatever the doctor wants to do after labor has begun, you can do. So that's when stripping the membrane comes in. Usually they just do that to help things along. That's fine, that can be done. Active labor itself doesn't make a woman anita. So just because you're getting regular contractions, that doesn't make you anita. The point where you become anita is when the contractions have gotten so close together, they're like a minute apart, or you can't walk because you're getting so many contractions, then at that point a woman does become anita. Once a woman becomes anita, uh, then a halachas of anita apply. And the most relevant is right after childbirth is uh, looking at your wife when she's uncovered. So that's obviously not appropriate. So you can position yourself in a way that you don't have to see anything. It's just, she's covered. And uh, passing the baby, you know, the, or obviously hugging and kissing. But the, the, in the hospital, sometimes they look at you funny that you're not taking the baby from your wife, or you're not giving the baby to your wife, but that's the unfortunate reality of Baruch Hashem, we're Jews, uh, and that's the way it is. So um, that's, that all those things are applicable as soon as, as the baby is born. With a C-section, essentially the blood that comes out through a C-section doesn't make a woman into a nida because it's coming out through the wrong way. However, uh, having spoken to doctors about this, it seems that once the delivery happens, the woman starts bleeding almost immediately. So, for all intents and purposes, after a C-section, a woman also will be treated as a nida right then.
Um, and obviously Tznius needs to be observed. The typical halachas of Tznius need to be observed, which is that no public ha- uh, shows of affection are allowed, so hugging and kissing uh, can't be done in the room when there's other people there, Before, obviously before a woman becomes a Nita. Now, as far as Shabbos is concerned, uh, if you're, there's a possibility that you'll have a baby on Shabbos or on Yantiv, so what you need to do is you need to prepare the bag in advance. If you're going to like a hospital like HC, which is within the Eruv, so that's, that's easy, you know, so there's no problem, you can carry the bag in yourself. In that bag, you should put in whatever food, whatever clothing you need, whatever food you need. You could have a cell phone in that bag as well, and I mean you can have an extra cell phone in that bag, besides the cell phone that you need to carry with you. And you should carry a cell phone with you because you don't want to be without a cell phone. It's, you know, that especially during such a time. So you can carry one cell phone with you, but you can also have an extra cell phone in the bag should you, should you want. Um, and uh, if necessary, money or whatever other identifying de- documents ne- are necessary, they can all be in the bag together with other things that are mutter. If you're going on a yantiv, you should, like Pesach, for example, make sure you have matzah in the bag or whatever it is that you're going to need. Um, I always suggest that people should use Uber. Uber is the best because you don't have to worry about the money. So if you can do Uber, do Uber. You're essentially allowed to drive yourself to the hospital. It's mutter, but it's a bad idea if it can be avoided. Sometimes it can't be avoided. You know, people, the, the hospital driver is not coming or whatever is other times. But the problem with driving yourself is not the getting there. You can drive there. That's not the problem. The problem is what do you do with your car when you get there, that's the problem. You essentially have to abandon it. You have to get out of your car and leave it where it is, park, uh, running. You can't even park it. You have to leave it running as is. So uh, it, it, that's problematic. And most people are not ready to do that. And that gets you into a very sticky area, halakhically. So if you can avoid it, avoid it. Uh, if you can't avoid it, so it's usually what you could do is you can drive to the valet area and then hope they just take over as is, you know, and try not to drive more than you have to, whatever. So you could do your best with that. Uh, funny story I've said in the past about a friend of, a friend of mine in Los Angeles, Kyle, that uh, had to drive, he actually did have to drive himself, I don't remember why, but he had to drive himself, and it was on Shabbos, and, um, or it was on Yom Kippur, it might have even been on Yom Kippur. <laughs> uh, and, and he left, he drove up in front of the emergency section, and he left his car there running, and the guard said, you can't leave your car there. And he said, I'm sorry, I, I, can't, I can't drive. You know, it's the, it was the holiest day of the year. So he said to him, but you just drove here. What do you mean? So he said it was a life-threatening situation. I had to get my wife here. So the guard was actually London. And the guard said, wait a second, if you leave your car there, uh, it's dangerous for other people who have to come, you know, and, and it's life-threatening for them. So drive your car away. So he told them, you could drive it away. <laughs> and they left it at that. He wasn't, the guard wasn't very happy. Anyway, so uh, that's why it's best to make sure you take an Uber or a uh, car service. I also suggest, if you can, if you, let's say, you're going to the hospital and you're worried that you might have to um, come back, uh, so you can, if you unlock your phone, what you can do is then you can ask a guy in the hospital to call a cab back for you, an Uber back for you. And your wife, generally in that situation, whatever reason you went, has the status of a chayla, even if not a chayla sheish b'sakana, a chayla b'sakana, so you can ask a guy to call the Uber for you and you can go to Uber with your wife back home. Uh, so if you have your phone unlocked, you don't have to do anything, you can just have that other person do it for you and, and tap the Uber and, and all that. So it's sometimes a good idea to unlock your phone in advance so that uh, it's, it's easier to, to deal with. Um, you can, when you're going to the hospital on Shabbos, you can pick up the babysitter 
for that old, you can call the people you need to call, you can call the doctor, all those things are permitted. If you have a doula, you can pick up the doula. As it turns out, these days with uh, corona, they don't really allow two people in. So most people have had to choose between the husband or the doula. Each person makes their own choice on that one. <laughs> but uh, uh, interestingly, someone just asked me, uh, and I thought this was very interesting, uh, can you have the doula through Zoom? on a Shabbos or Yanta. Apparently that's what doulas are doing now. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because the, the hector for a doula is, is um, anything, the Gemara seems to say that anything that makes the, a woman who's giving birth calm and, and uh, easier to handle it is considered pikoch nefesh and it's allowed. I'm not sure of the, how effective Zoom is. So that's why it's hard for me to say. So if, if a person feels that it'll help them a lot, then essentially it would be mutter, just as it's mutter to bring a doula along to begin with. Once, uh, when going into the hospital on Shabbos and Yantiv, you go in as you need to, you just go and you do what you got to do. Once the baby is born, so then really uh, there's no heterium anymore at that point. So you have to try to avoid any kind of Chil uh, Shabbos or even Amir La'akam. But you could do any Amir La'akam necessary to help your wife. So you obviously can call a, a nurse who's a guy to turn on the light, turn off the light, uh, whatever is necessary to make your wife more comfortable. Likewise, if you're trying to visit your wife and you need a guy to open a door for you to buzz you in, you can do that because you're going to visit a chayla, at this point, which is allowed, Amir Lakim is allowed for that purpose. But if you want to leave, uh, even to go daven, and you want to do a mirlakim, that's questionable. But generally, again, over here in the hospitals here, it's not such a big deal. Leaving is easy. It's coming back, that's the harder part. And, uh, you know, that's that you can do. You can, to visit your wife, you can ask a guy to help you, to, to let you in. Um, last point I want to make before we go further, after um, pregnancy and, and childbirth, I want to talk about, for a moment, about birth control. Um, so, the... First of all, just people should re- realize that there are many options when it comes to birth control nowadays. Even if previously you've had problems with one or another, you should realize there are a number of them, and most of them are halachically okay. So there is obviously the pill, which is the easiest and the most halachically viable. Um, then, the, for a lot of people, the pill doesn't work. It causes um, some people it causes hormonal changes which affect their period. They get spatting and all kinds of problems. Other people it affects their mood. It affects their mats of ruach. And it's good to be aware of that if you're uh, feeling any of these side effects. Uh, see your doctor because it might it might be as a result of the pill that you're taking. Um, after the pill, there's something called a patch or a nuvering. Sometimes that helps with a lot of these issues because it goes directly into the, the, the woman's body rather than having to go through you know, the, the digestive system. So it, it works better often. So that might be something you might want to um, investigate. Um, and then, of course, if you're doing a longer-term birth control for two years or more, then there's the IUD. With an IUD, nowadays, there's actually three kinds. The one kind that the doctors don't use anymore, which is the old-fashioned IUD, was called the copper IUD, that had no hormones at all. Uh, that caused, um, that tended to cause a lot of bleeding and pain. The most popular IUD for a long time was called, is called the Mirena. That's coupled together with hormones. That has two interesting um, side effects. One, it, one is that initially it causes a lot of bleeding, depending on each person. Some people have no problem, other people have tremendous problem, and then there's a lot of people in the middle. So it can cause you to bleed for a month, two months, three months, four months, I've heard as much as six months, 
It could happen, you should know that. But there are people that, you know, that have no problem at all. So it's good to know that. It's also good to reach out to the doctor. They can help with, you know, different try ways of adding medication and so on and so forth. And then what the Morana tends to do is that once you get past that initial, you know, period of getting used to it, the body getting used to it, it then sometimes cuts off the period totally for a long time. People could then go for six months without a period. So at least I guess there's a payoff. But again, it's good to know that that's, that's the way the Morana works. Now there's a third kind, which I'm not so familiar with, uh, that has, is like the Mirena, but the hormones are a little different, and that tends to be a little bit more, more normal on the body. So people generally stick to a regular cycle when they get that kind of uh, IUD. So it's good to, to be knowledgeable of this when you speak to your doctor, to know there's very, all these different options. If none of these work for you, which sometimes that's the case, then there is one other option, which is called the diaphragm, that's a little bit less halachically clear that it's permitted, but it's certain shasat chak, it's allowed. So again, that's something you would need to speak to a rabbi about. It's not the best um, option out there, but it's an option. Um, as far as birth control in general, birth control is something which is supported by the rabbanim, uh, often suggested by rabbanim, uh, and it's just something that requires a discussion with the rav to understand the hashkafa behind it, and when it's applied, and how long to go, and you know, how long to to, uh, to, to, u- to utilize it, but it is something which is often necessary and the right thing to do. So every person should utilize uh, the opportunity. Every, you're, I myself, as you Rav, and whoever else you may speak to, we'll be very happy to discuss it with you and you get insight on what's the proper way to approach this hashkafically. The concept of, of birth control in Yiddishkeit is that every person requires time to recover, both physically and mentally, and to be able to have the ability to, to have more children. My father-in-law was once speaking to Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky about it, and Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky told him that, you know, the Gemara says that women don't have children until 24 months pass after they have a baby. So that used to be the way it was. So HaKadosh Baruch kind of built in a natural form of uh, birth control in the time of the Gemara, at least, and throughout, however long afterwards it continued. So that means a woman would, by definition, have a baby, 24 months she would be Mesulekas Damim, it would be impossible for her to have a baby, and then only then she'd become pregnant. So effectively, there would be about two and a half to three years in between children by every single woman. So he said, and then he went through his own children, uh, Shmuel and Nassan, and he, and he demonstrated to Meshra that that's the way it worked for him, pretty much, that he had about three years in between his children. And he said, for whatever reason, the has changed, but we can infer, infer that that is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu intended, that people need about that much time to recover both physically, mentally, and have the ability to raise their children properly. So that is hashkafically speaking, the approach for the most part that uh, a rub will take, and obviously there's many other situations which can play a role, and all of them are taken into account. So that was the rest of the time we have. Let's talk about the halachas of Tznias, uh, called Hilchas Tznias, it's Simon Reish Mem, and Shulchan Aruch HaRachayim, and the halachas that apply to the bedroom. So first I want to talk about lights, lights in the room. So no light can be on in the room itself. You can't have a lamp on in the room itself. This is an iser, and it's important to differentiate, well, as we go along in these halachas, that there are certain things in halachas which are isurim, 
This is one of them. And there are other things which are not surim, but they're hanhagis. Like Chazal say, yeah, this is the way you should be noyeg, this is the way a person, Alpeh Ashkafa, should, should do. So this is, this is a iser, it's a real iser. You can't have a light on in the room. Now, a light can be on essentially in a different room. So it could be on in a bathroom, it could be on in a closet, you know, presuming there's no mezuzah problem. So, and then the light can shine into your room. But there's two things to realize about that. Number one, the light can't shine directly onto your bed. So like if you can see the light bulb from your bed, that's not okay. So you would have to close the door enough that that doesn't happen. But also, if the light that's in the bathroom effectively makes your room very, very light, so you haven't really accomplished anything. See, your room can't be very light either. Then it's basically like being Mishamish Biyayim, which is problematic. So, both ways, so basically the rule is like this. You can have light in the bathroom, and you should have some light to you know, see what's going on. So you can you close the door enough that the room is, there is some level of light in the room that you can see what's going on, but it should be considered dark. You know, it should be, uh, it should be a, a darkish, lightish room, I guess, if you want to you wanna put it that way. But there sh- it should be a dark room with some light. If there's so much light that, like I said, it's like you basically could see easily everything, then uh, that, that's not okay. Um, lights that are too little to really create any significant light, like uh, the light of a um, digital clock, you know, sometimes the, even the, dig- the digits create some significant light, that's not a problem. Even night lights, believe it or not, some pies can allow, believing that they don't really create any significant amount of light. Again, I'm talking about a night light that doesn't, like a small little night light. So there are pies that allow that as well, as well. What is important to know is that the iser of a light really is only Bishas Maisa itself. Up till that point, you know, what, what we refer to as foreplay, the light is allowed to be on. The light is allowed to be on. So if you want, another option you have, is if it's easy for you to reach your lamp, you can have the light on and then turn it off. We don't want, once things get further advanced. So that's another thing, and that's permitted. Uh, but again, it's an Isra, so you should be careful with that. Just make sure that you have it in reach and you're going to be able to do it in, in, uh, in, at the proper time. That's Allah of the, of the light. Um, when we talk about light, we should talk about day, uh, but I'll talk about day a little bit later. Number two I want to talk about is svarim, svarim or tashmishi kedusha, like tefillin or mezuzah in the room. Svarim is also something which is an iser. So again, it's very important to be careful about. So no svarim can be in the room, and that includes anything which has the status of a sefer or tashmishi kedusha, like tefillin. Um, not, not talus is not a problem, tits is not a problem, but tefillin is an issue, uh, including a Kriya Shemash Alamita card also is an issue and can't be in the, in the bedroom. Um, Jewish books, probably not a problem. Um, magazines, probably also not a problem. It's still nice to take it out. If you take magazines into the bathroom, then you could leave it in the <laughs> in the bedroom. So I'm not going to weigh in on that right now. But I'm just whatever that that certainly will work the same way. Now this is something like I said, as an insert, it has to be remembered. What can you do if you have farm in your room? You can cover them. They need a double covering, so they would need to either have a double covering, or you could put it in a drawer cover it with something in the drawer. So let's say you put it in a drawer, you put a towel over it, and then close the drawer. That's a double covering. The drawer is a cover, and the towel is another cover. Um, or if you put it in a cabinet, so a cabinet, if it has 10 tfachim, which often it does, which is about uh, 40 inches, so if you have like a, you know, a um, armoire, so that's already enough. That's a mechitza. So then you don't need more than that. So all, all those options are an option. 
sometimes when you're a guest by someone else, and uh, your guest, let's say, by your in-laws or whatever it is, and it's for an extended amount of time, you're there for Yantiv, you're there for two weeks. So another halacha is that a guest is not allowed to be Mishamash Mitasai when he's a guest, but that halacha is not a absolute halacha. I mean, you say the Isser is not... Um, the Isser is not... Because your guest, the Isser is using their linen. So if you bring your own sheet... That's fine. Then you can you can be you can you, you can have relations while you're a guest by someone else, or if you have a towel which you spread under you, you can also have relations when you're by someone else. Uh, so that would be a way to work around the guest issue. But what I was was about to say is that sometimes you're a guest and you're put into the room that has all the svarim, right? You put into one of your brother-in-law's bedrooms and he has all his bar mitzvahs farm there. Uh, so that makes things complicated. So one option is you know you could start hanging sheets and be creative in those ways, which is difficult. But there's another heter, which, believe it or not, I was surprised that Yash relied on this. It's a mechleikas of early, early achreinim. It's quoted in the Kafachaim, I think. But Yash relied on this heter, which is you could cover yourself with a double covering. So you could use two sheets, uh, or two blankets. I don't, I don't know about, like, you know, a, a comforter inside a, a sheet cover, Let's count that as one. Let's keep things simple. Just take two. So take two two covers, you know, yours and your wife's, and put it on over you, and that counts as uh, two coverings. You don't have to put it over your head. You don't have to suffocate yourself. You could, you know, just put it up to your whatever, and that's fine. And then that's that's sufficient. You know, I, I get. I, I'm suggesting this because often it's a shasad chak. You know, you're there for a long time. You're there for two weeks. You're away for yantiv. Back in um, pre-corona historic days, <laughs> when that such a thing existed. Um, and uh, and and then you're stuck like that. So that's that's a good that's a good option. The mezuzah also is part of this halacha, and the mezuzah has one covering, but that's its own cover. Sometimes it has actually it really has two coverings. That's the truth. It's covered with a plastic, and it has a, a plastic case. But being that those it always has those, those are all counted as one. So generally, what you need to do is just close the door so that the mezuzah is covered, and usually that's enough. Sometimes you'll have a closet with the mezuzah on the outside which in other words, inside the bedroom. So even if you close the door, the mezuzah is still inside your bedroom. Uh, Then you have to cover it uh, some way or another. I find you can put a sack on it. Sometimes that helps. Um, But if it's your own bedroom, what you should do is something else. On a permanent level, what you should do is is that take the mezuzah out and put a piece of either plastic or silver foil on it and have the express intent that you're not putting it there permanently. You're not being mevatel it there. you'll, You'll switch it out whatever, eventually. So, and then it counts as a second cover. So this is a situation which you're going to be in for an extended amount of time, you know, like your own bedroom, then this is what you should do. In other words, take the mezuzah off the wall, you don't have to make another bracha when you put it back up, put the silver foil or whatever it is around it, and put it back in the case, and put it back on. That's how you could take care of that issue. Um, covering ourselves. So the here is where we move away from all everything we were talking about till now. We're actually surim, okay? When we're talking about um, lights in the room, svarim in the room, being mishamish as a guest uh, without you know uh, using your own towel or your own sheet. That's an actual iser. This is now the next thing we're about to talk about. Actually, is not an iser. That is that you need to be covered during during um, relations. That means you have to have the cover over you. And that's a halacha of tzniyas. It's a halacha, I mean, it's brought down in Shulchan Aruch, but it's not an iser. And the importance, the reason why it's important to differentiate is because sometimes the cover falls off when, you know, you're in the middle. Um, and, you know, you know, you should try to get it on, but not at the expense of Zerah Levatalo. So it's important to realize that. 
that that's not an issue. You're not even an issue without the cover. It's serious, and you should try to do it, and you make it your your business to do it. But it's it's not at the expense of something which actually is a, a question. Um, the exception to this rule is if a person is being mishamish biyayim, and now we'll get into being mishamish biyayim. Mishamish biyayim is permitted if you can make the room very dark. It is permitted. Shulchan Aruch advises against it. And that's the fact. He does advise against it. There are times when it's actually necessary. And you can discuss that with the Rav or whoever it is that you talk over these things with. There are times when being Misham might be your only option during pregnancy, other situations when night is just not working. Um, and that being the case, it's important to realize that by day, you actually have to cover yourself in Iqra din. So that's what's important to know. By day, it's much, much more important to, to have that cover. Again, you don't have to put it over your head, you have to suffocate yourself. So the covering always, whenever you cover yourself, it just has to be till your chest or whatever, basically your waist. But uh, during the day, it's, it's more, it's me'ekr hadin. Then there are some things which are al-pikabala um, or or Chazal recommended it for health. So the, the recommendation Chazal make is that after nursing or after using the bathroom, a person shouldn't have relations for 18 minutes. Mahalath mil. You can do everything else. So you can have foreplay, everything before that, but the actual relations themselves should be 18 minutes after the point when a person has gone to the bathroom or after the point that uh, nursing took place. This could make life a little bit difficult when you have a little baby, but life anyway is difficult when you have a little baby. <laughs> that's, that's powerful, of course. But that's the, that, 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 that halacha. Another thing is that which days you should refrain from um, intimacy. So, Meikar Adin, we know um, Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur are the days that are Asr no matter what. Of course, Leil Tefillah doesn't make any difference. Those are all Asr. But there are four other days uh, five other days actually that are asr not asr they're apikabala a person shouldn't be together during those nights and those are both nights of Rosh Hashanah Shemini Atzeres the first Seder night and the first night of Shavuos so basically every Yantiv has at least one day that's asr yeah? Rosh Hashanah both days on Sukkot is just Shemini Atzeres on Pesach is the first night and on Shavuos is the first night so those apikabala a person should be together if it's a Lel Tvila it is allowed. Um, and otherwise not, Mishabura says a person should have seichel if there's a, an extenuating situ- situation that you think is important to be together, uh, you could be mekel. Again, it's a pikabala. It's, it's not a proper iser. It's not exactly an iser at all. It's a pikabala, whatever the status of that is. Like, since, we, as you see, when it's a leltvila, we override it. Likewise, we would override it when there's another extenu- extenuating circumstance. So that's what I... Uh, wanted to cover as far as these halachas of sneers are concerned. I see someone asked, what about using the host's towel? In other words, when you're a guest, can you use the host's towel to put under you? So here's the thing. Really, using the host towel would be just as bad as using his sheet. But I, what the halacha is, though, if you have this option, you could really use the host's sheet or the host towel if you put it in the washing machine. So in other words, if you're makbid to put it in the washing machine immediately after use, uh, so that because the the iser is that the host will see uh, something on the sheet and know that that uh, relations took place and that's the lack of sneers. So as long as you take care of the washing, essentially you could even use their sheet or use their towel in a pinch. The better the better approach is to obviously have your own, but it's a lot of times it's not. You remember, you, didn't, you know, you don't end up like that. So then it it is uh, it is allowed. 
Uh, I will say another thing about being a guest, but since uh, when, when we bring it up, uh, when you have a Lel Tefillah, so as we know, you're supposed to keep a Lel Tefillah private, right? And you're supposed to keep it a secret, and Rumal is actually kind of um, sharp about it, that how important it is to keep it private. Now, that, that is true, but it is permitted and actually advisable when you are, let's say, by your in-laws, and you have a Lel Tefillah, and you have little kids, and you need your in-laws to take care of them, it's okay to tell them where you're going. They'll figure it out anyway. <laughs> They'll know. Any, regardless, they know. Uh, so it's okay to tell them. It's permitted to tell them, actually. And if you do, you'll save yourself a lot of Agbis Nefesh. Plus, they'll save you Agbis Nefesh. They will cover for you. They'll uh, corroborate your story. <laughs> you know, they'll see to it that the suda gets delayed for some other reason so that when you show up, it's not so obvious and all, uh, all those things and more. So it's actually permitted and suggested that you, you do confide in whoever it is you need to, to help you out to make it a reality, to go to the mikvah. As far as, you know, this is also something that I get asked often when there'll be an ex- exceeding amount of embarrassment involved going to the mikvah when there's a lot of people say, it's a Shabbat Shevi Bracha, so you're going to go to the mikvah, you're going to come late, you're not going to have any makeup on, and etc. All those things are very valid Shiloh and very often a valid reason to push up a little tefillah. Any, all of those situations are a case where you should speak to a Rav and very often that will be a valid reason to push off the, the little tefillah as necessary. Okay, that's it for me tonight. And um, if you have any other questions, I'll be happy to answer them.